He says I should. He says I should start. So why don't we start? There we go. It's my favorite part. Hello, everyone. Hi. How are you, Stephanie? Good to see you, everybody. Awesome. We are, are in Romans. Uh, we're looking at Romans chapter five and uh, continuing the, in the study. And it's been a few weeks. I'm excited to be able to resume. So let's open in prayer and start. Lord, thank you for the time to gather in the middle of the week to study your word. I thank you for uh, the fellowship we have with one another, the love we have for each other, and a sense of just being part of the family of God. What an incredible privilege. And I pray that you'd be with us, O Lord, as we study your word, as we try to understand it and, um, and put it to practice in our lives. So guide me as I lead us and all of us as we think together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's been a few weeks. I want to uh, give a brief review of where we're at till now, and then we'll dig in in Romans, uh, Romans 5. So the book of Romans uh, is the clearest uh, description of the gospel, the message of salvation that God has given to the world. God has given a message, a set of words, a set of teachings, that if you believe those teachings, you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's Romans 1.16 and 17. It is the theme verse of the entire gospel uh, and the entire book of Romans. Uh, and then Paul goes on uh, in the next section, Romans 1.18 up to about 3.23, I think you'd go that far by showing that every single human being on the face of the earth needs that gospel. We are sinners, uh, and that sin problem is severe and deep and powerful. So in Romans, uh, the rest of chapter 1, uh, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He then describes uh, the general wickedness of the human race, uh, a wickedness that extends to the fact that they can see God's mighty power in creation, but they don't worship Him, they don't give thanks to Him, uh, they don't serve Him. Instead, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. And that is the, I think, textbook definition of idolatry. When you are worshiping and serving the creature, created things, rather than the Creator, that is idolatry. And we are all naturally idolatrous. We naturally go after physical things and love them and serve them and live for them instead of God. Uh, it also talks in Romans 1 about a whole river of evils and sins at the end of Romans 1 that is characteristic of the entire human race. He then in chapter 2 goes into moralistic uh, pagans, those that have certain moral scruples and try to live up to them, uh, but they never do perfectly. And on the standard in which they judge someone else, they're judging themselves. And they forget that God is going to be the perfect judge of all morality and nobody lives up to any perfect moral standard. Instead, uh, we are constantly, by our wickedness and by our sins, storing up wrath for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what He has done. And so he describes two different ways to live in Romans chapter 2. Uh, those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, to them he'll give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Two different ways to live. And then he goes directly into the case of the Jewish people who think that because they're Jewish, they're fine, they're saved. Because they have the law, the law of Moses. Just because they have it, they think they're fine. And Paul says, yeah, but do you keep it? I mean, because, just because you have it, do you keep it? The fact of the matter is, you're violating 
uh, the very law of God that God has given. It does not set you apart as different. It actually makes you more accountable to God because you're not living up to the very thing that God commanded you to do. And uh, one of the th big themes is, uh, we didn't talk a lot about it, but uh, it says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here God had set apart the Jews as a chosen race, put them up on a pedestal by the Exodus so that the entire world could see the mighty works of God, the ten plagues, the Red Sea crossing, uh, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. He led them into the promised land and destroyed the, the city of Jericho and, and all that established them and set them up and gave them a covenant, but they didn't live up to it. Uh, they didn't keep the law. And so therefore, instead of putting God on display as a holy and righteous and a loving God, they themselves became every bit as corrupt as the Canaanites that they drove out. They became the same. And so uh, the prophets came and warned them, uh, et cetera, but the judgment of God came. And so, no, the, the law of God doesn't save anyone. So then he, he then summarizes in Romans 3 this whole section that everybody, every single person needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the statement, uh, Romans 3, 9 and following, uh, what then shall we conclude? Are we any better? No, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's an incredible statement that we can use in evangelism. There's no one righteous, no one who does good. So people who think that their good deeds are going to outweigh the bad, that verse says they don't have any. So even if that were the system whereby we could have our sins forgiven, you have no good deeds. And so that whole thing doesn't work, and besides which, that's not how it, how it happens. If you happen to do a good deed, it means that for once in your life, you did what God wanted you to do. What about all those other times you didn't? So there's no extra credit ever possible in this life. You can either obey God and serve Him rightly, or you can sin. Those are the two options. There's no extra credit. And so basically every single human being on the face of the earth needs this gospel, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then in Romans 3, 21 through 26, we have the glowing heart of the gospel, uh, the righteousness from God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, and that God presented Jesus as a propitiation through faith in His blood. The propitiation means one who turns aside the wrath of God by a sacrifice. That's what Jesus is. By faith in the blood of Jesus, we are justified. We are forgiven of all of our sins. So Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the glowing heart of the gospel, the center of the gospel. And the centerpiece of that is the concept of justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. By works of the law, no one is justified. But by simple faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We are seen to be righteous in the sight of God beautiful picture of this, of course, is the thief on the cross who didn't do any good works. He was a, he was a criminal to the, to, the, to the end. But he saw Jesus properly. He said, we are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Perfect picture of justification by faith apart from works. That's what we get. We are forgiven by simple faith in the gospel, by believing in Jesus. Now, in Romans 4, Paul brings up the question, is this a new gospel? Is this something that's, that's new? Or did the Old Testament saints find the same thing? What did Abraham discover about this? How was Abraham made right before God? Now, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That idea of having a righteousness credited to you, that's justification by faith, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. That's what we have. And so Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And David was justified by faith and not by works because he wrote Psalm 32. Blessed is the, is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. By simple faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered. And then he unfolds that more in terms of the, uh, the lifestyle of Abraham, uh, walking in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Um, that is the, the teaching of justification by faith. So from Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 4 is established this concept of justification, forgiveness, by faith in Christ alone. That brings us to chapter 5. In chapter 5, 1 through 11, we have uh, beautiful words of assurance. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? And access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because why? God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So he's got all of these things of assurance. We have a sense of certainty and the beautiful treasures we have in the gospel that Paul celebrates in Romans 5, 1 through 11. He said, when we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, now how much more, if when we're sinners, Christ died for us, how much more that now that Christ has risen, is that the right hand of God interceding for us, shall be finally saved through his life. So that's Romans 5, 1 through 11. Now that brings us to Romans 5, 12 through 21. That's today's passage. By the way, I did all that because Thomas says we're recording this for two journeys, and he said, whenever you start, give a review of what you've studied up to this point. That was it. All right, so now we're in uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, and we're in the topic of Adam and Christ. So the, the idea of a comparison and contrast, uh, contrasting, uh, compare and contrast between Adam and Christ. So let's walk through this. Um, I would love somebody to read Romans 5, 12 through um, I don't know where to cut it, uh, 12 through 16, middle of that par paragraph on your handout, and then somebody else 17 to the end, of, uh, up through 21. 12 through 16, and then 17 through 21. Therefore, righteousness to bring eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, awesome. So this is a very dense, heavy, complex section of Romans. Romans itself is the densest, heaviest, most complex book in the Bible. Uh, it's a very, very heavy, theologically rich passage. Um, so we've got a comparison and a contrasting between Adam and Christ. So uh, let's do a little bit of review of what we've already seen from a few weeks ago. First of all, Paul's goals in this section are Romans 5. His minor point, minor point, how did sin and death come to reign universally? Why is it wherever you go in the world, you see sin and death? Wherever you, everyone you're interacting with, they know that they're sinners. They always do. They know that they, they violate their conscience, they do wrong things, they feel guilty, they, they know that, everybody admits it, it's universal. And secondly, why is there death everywhere? Why is it no one is solved, there's no one exempt, everyone dies. Categories don't matter, rich and poor alike, race, uh, gender, none of it matters, we're all subject to death, why? What is the reason? This chapter uh, answers that. That, in, that God saw the entire human race as sinful in Adam and condemned the entire human race in Adam because of Adam's sin. It's a doctrine of original sin. That's the answer given here by Paul. 
um, that's the minor point, okay? The major point is the comparison between Adam and Christ enables us to understand the gospel, and specifically justification. How is that? Because we have a federal representative. We have an individual who represents us, and that individual is Adam, and then in the same pattern, we have another individual who represents us as well. That's how we get saved. That's how our salvation is worked because of this idea of federal or representative headship. So we sinned in Adam, we are saved in Christ. Again, very difficult for us to understand. Justification by faith is not the normal religion. The normal religion is I'm going to work my way out of this, this mess. I've done a bunch of things. I now need to do a bunch of right things to make it right. God will not have that. Instead, justification by faith, forgiveness by faith in Christ. That's it. This chapter helps explain it by the compare and contrast between Adam and Christ. So, summary. The obedience of Christ is parallel to, but vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. They are compared here, but Christ's obedience is greater than Adam's disobedience. So you get compare and contrast going on here. Secondly, the righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ is parallel but vastly superior to the sin imputed to those who are in Adam because of his disobedience. They're similar, but Christ is greater. All right, and then thirdly, the life that comes to us who are in Christ through that imputed righteousness is parallel but vastly superior to the death that comes to those who are in Adam through that imputed sin. That's what this, these verses are about. That's the logic of Romans, all right? There's a compare and contrast. So Christ is similar to Adam, but greater than Adam. And the impact is similar, but greater. That's what we're getting at. All right, so uh, this is the next section proves it from the text. There's a repeated parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam is a type of him who is to come, that is Christ. All right, so what does that mean, a type of him who is to come? A type. What does that word type mean? He's a type of the one who is to come. Yeah. It means uh, there's some similarities mm -hmm. between the, 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 between the type mm -hmm. and what the Pentateuch, what it's a type of. Exactly. It's a, it's a lived out prophecy. You know, you get two, two different kind of patterns of prophecy in the Bible, verbally predictive and then typical, typically predictive, the type. Something acted out in history is a, is a prediction of something that will come later. A very good example of this is Noah and the flood. That is, is acted out, the destruction of the world at the end of the world through fire. So that's, you have these acted out things. The animal sacrifices are acted out types. Uh, it's not verbally predictive prophecy, it's just acted out. So Adam in the Garden of Eden is an acted out pattern of Christ. So we have uh, Adam mentioned in verse 12, 15, 16, 17, just as sin entered the world through one man. That one man is Adam. Again, verse 15, the, the many died by the trespass of the one man. Okay, and then verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Again, verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. That's all, that's Adam, Adam. And then uh, Christ, verse 15, God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And again, 17, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you've got one man, Adam, one man, Christ. And then the summary in verse 18 and 19, consequently, just as the result of, the one, tras of one trespass was condemnation for all men, 
so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Again, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many were made righteous. So just as, so also are comparing to, comparing Adam and Christ. But there are key differences between Adam and Christ. There's the contrast aspect, verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. What is the difference? Christ's effect on those in him is abundantly superior to Adam's effect on those in him. So also verse 15, how much more? Jesus did not come simply to return us to ground zero, back at the Garden of Eden where Adam was before he sinned. Jesus takes us light years beyond that. Now, why does Paul teach this at this point in Romans? We must understand justification by faith alone apart from works of the law because we have a constant tendency to revert to our own good works. The doctrine of original sin obliterates that. We must see how superior Christ is and what a great salvation we have in him. All right, this again by way of review from last time, how sin and death entered, the, entered, through one, entered the world through one man's sin, verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came or spread to all men because all sinned. All right, so what is the significance in verse 12, and this is again by way of review, of the statement, because all sinned? What, is, what do those words mean, because all sinned in verse 12? Okay. Okay, so that would be what we would call imputed or credited sin. We were all imputed or credited with the sin of Adam, even though we hadn't even been born yet or hadn't done anything good or bad. But in the mind of God, because we are human, because we are descended from Adam, <clears throat> God considers us sinful. All right, so that's what because all sinned mean. This is the doctrine of original sin in verse 12, because all sin. So sin entered through Adam, um, and as a result, uh, that realm, that, uh, that power or state of relationship with God called sin entered. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, Romans 3, 9. And with that <coughs> comes death, death through sin. Now, this was the preordained penalty which God said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So the link between sin and death was made before Adam ever sinned. It was the death penalty. All sin deserves the death penalty. So this is the major theme. The soul who sins is the one who will die, Ezekiel 18.4. Or again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the reason for death. Death is a penalty for sin, all right? So uh, the animal sacrifices acted that out. Uh, they taught the worshiper that all sin deserves a death penalty. And, it, and that was taught by the fact that the sacrifice was killed. Its blood was poured out. So the wages of sin is death. Now, what is this death? We said last time there are three aspects of it or stages. First, spiritual death happened right away. Adam became dead in his transgressions and sins. What does that mean, spiritual death? What is that concept of spiritual death? A loss of fellowship with Christ. Okay, loss of fellowship with Christ or with God. What is the evidence for Adam and Eve's spiritual death after they ate the fruit? So the whole nakedness thing. 
they realized they were naked and they made fig leaves to cover themselves and hid ver uh, horizontally from each other. So there's clear physical evidence of a break in their relationship with one another. And then uh, vertically, when Adam hears God walking in the garden, what does he do? He hides. So he does not want to be with God. So that's terrible, obviously. And he said, I heard you walk in the garden. I was afraid because I had naked, so I hid. Who told you you're naked? So that's uh, spiritual death. Second is physical death. And physical death, uh, you know, Genesis 5, altogether Adam lived 930 years, then he died. So that's uh, Genesis 5 is the death chapter. You know, just the genealogy and just, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. Just death, physical death. And then there's eternal death, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's uh, uh, eternal death. Yeah. Um, this brings to my mind a question. In the Old Testament, they had this clear, uh, this idea of spiritual death, physical death, and um, eternal death. It was something they, it was clear for the Pharisees or the, the people who studied the Torah. So they felt that they, they believed in spiritual death? Yeah, they, they, did, they, they had this understanding that Paul made so clear for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I, I, I don't know that the Pharisees saw themselves as spiritually dead. Uh, I think they saw the others outside. What do you, what do you think? Um, I, don't, I don't think they did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it, just, it, it just popped to my mind because it's not something, because they don't, they are waiting for the Messiah, right. but they know they need the salvation of their souls or they yeah, there, it's, it's hard to know. I tell you, when you look at the Old Testament, there's, there's some things. Like one of the big discoveries I had when I was doing Job is that they did not really have a clear sense of personal eschatology, heaven and hell for the individual. The Old Testament didn't speak a lot. There are a couple of verses, and if you, look, if you know what to, how to read them, you can see it. But, you know, Job himself seemed to have good days and bad days on that whole topic, you know? I mean, he's not consistent. The statements, and I, I showed this when I preached through Job. But it was Jesus that came and made all of that much clearer. But here's Paul openly saying, apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ, people are spiritually dead. And Paul's going to say it in Romans 7, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. That's spiritual death. Tony, uh, how would you respond to somebody who uh, heard and basically understood the teaching that uh, sin is imputed to us from Adam and who would say to you, that's not fair. I didn't. I, I, I yeah. was born with no chance. And even beyond that, that now that Christ has died, is not his righteousness also imputed to me. I can be a, a, a spectator watching from the sideline. Yeah, and I, I want to draw out the faulty parallel uh, later in the handout, which I did a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, I would say, first of all, no one cares more about justice than God does. And, you know, Ezekiel 18, it's very, very clear. When he says the soul who sins is the one who will die. It's that, that whole proverb, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's a picturesque way of saying we're paying unfairly for the sins of our fathers. Well, one would say home base in Ezekiel 18 is a whole Adam and imputed sin. It's like that doesn't seem fair. So it's more complex than that. This is how it works. Basically, we confirm our status by our choices. All right? So I don't believe there's anybody, I really don't believe there's anybody in hell because of Adam's sin. All right, we're in hell. People go to hell because of things they did that were wrong, and they knew they were wrong, and they violated their conscience, 
or they violated the law of God, and they knew what they were doing was wrong. I think that's it. I think the, the, the picture of Judgment Day is always the court is seated, the books are open, and the dead are judged according to what they've done as recorded in the books. So I, I think that the issue of fairness and justice, all you need to do is say to that person, if you want justice, I promise you'll get it. All right? The justice is found on Judgment Day or at the cross. Those are the two places justice is going to be found. But I'm telling you, you don't want justice in your case because that will mean your own condemnation. So that's how I would answer it, yeah. Yeah, I, um, it's I heard uh, R.C. Sproul, who's he created perfect represents. That's kind of the word. I see it, and I, I think that that's the, ultimately the theology of it. But I think the issue of fairness, I think the answer I gave from, from Ezekiel 18 and all that, basically you're not going to get condemned because of Adam's sin. You're going to get condemned because of those times you violated your conscience and you broke the law of God. So that's the key. Uh, I, don't, I really believe that with all my heart. There's no infant, no aborted baby, whatever. No one's in hell because of Adam's sin. I, I really believe it's because once we understand the existence of a creator and his moral code, written in our hearts and then written in the scripture, we break it. And when we break it, and that's what Romans 7 says, we die. And then that gets confirmed on Judgment Day, eternal death that way. So those are choices we make. So I really think that's what Ezekiel 18 is saying. No, you know, the soul who sins is the one who will die. You'll, you know, you'll be accountable for what you've chosen to do. So whoever asked that question, they're way past all that by now. They've already done it, all right, long time ago. So if we're just going to play games, playing games isn't going to save you, all right? Jesus came because of people just like you, <laughs> okay? So I don't know how you want to say it. We'll find winsome ways to say it. Um, but anyway, all sin, uh, continuing this review. Um, what does it mean? Did we all sin like Adam did, and that's why we die too, or we all sin in Adam through some profound union we had with him? It is not the first, it is the second. It's not that we all imitated Adam and sinned just like him. That's just Pelagius, that's what he taught. That's fundamentally what he taught. There is no such thing as original sin. But you draw out the parallel. Remember, in this section in Romans, Paul's teaching us the gospel. He's teaching us what justification is. That is not it. Listen to how it sounds. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all because all did individual acts of sin like Adam did, so also through one man righteousness came into the world and life through righteousness, and in this way all came to life because all did individual acts of righteousness like Christ did. Is that the gospel? Friend, it is not. You did not do individual acts of righteousness like Jesus. That's not the gospel. Instead, it's imputation. You get credited to you a sin in Adam, and you get credited to you a righteousness in Christ. That's the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul's teaching here. That's what we've got. All right? God imputes Adam's sin to us and applies Adam's penalty to us even before we were born. All right? And then, death's reign is universal because all sin, for before the law was given, 13 and 14, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. All right, so I walked through all that last time, so I decided to you know, clear all that out. Just fundamentally, I believe he's talking here about infants, people who died, but they didn't sin like Adam. Okay, I, I believe that's probably the best interpretation. They died because they're human, not because they sin like Adam. That's what Paul means in verse 14. Even over those who did not sin 
following the pattern of Adam. Who, was, who would that be? Uh, that would be, I think, infants. At any rate, death still was universal. Now we, uh, we zero in on the idea of Adam as a type of Christ. Um, Adam's main idea is Adam is a type of Christ, two posts or pattern example, just as in Adam, so in Christ. Adam was our representative at the tree of knowledge. In him we sinned and died. Christ was our representative at the tree of Calvary. In him we are made righteous and live. This is the gospel. All right, we think we can get ourselves out of this mess. Instead, we have to trust in Christ. Um, so now let's, this is the new material tonight, verse 15 through 17. Christ's impact is immeasurably greater than Adam's. That's the next point that he's making. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of, of the one man's sin. Uh, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? All right, there's a lot in there, so let's see if we can unpack it. First of all, Christ, as openly stated here, is not like Adam. And we've just been saying he is like Adam, and he is to some degree. But here Paul's saying he's also not like Adam, all right? And it has to do with his effect on the people he represents. Adam's effect was great. Jesus' effect is greater. That's the point that he's making here. Notice the how much more language, the how much more. So we should not think of it this way. Adam put us like on the number line of righteousness at a negative 10 and Jesus gets us back to zero. That's what the Wesleyans taught. That's called prevenient grace. And now you can do free will, which is what they were hoping for all along. All right? So that's what they do. You got, you got Adam saying, all right, we don't deny it. We're not Pelagians. All right? But Jesus nullifies Adam and gets us back to zero, and now you're on your own. Good luck to you, and I hope it goes well. Um, but that's, that's, that's semi-Pelagianism. That's the free will religion, et cetera. That's not what's going on here. It's not the language of this chapter. All right? Um, the effects of Christ's actions are super abundantly beyond the effects of Adam's action. If Adam gets us to a minus 10, Christ gets us to a positive infinity. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an eternity in the new heaven, new earth, before the throne of God, seeing God's face and shining like the sun. I mean, you can't even compare those two. That's what we're talking about. The greatness of the work of Christ and then, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. All right, so let me ask some questions. What is the gift? He's he keeps talking about the gift. He mentions that many times. What is the gift he's referring to here? The gift is not like the trespass. I like a gift. What's my gift? It's almost Christmas time. What's the gift? <laughs> okay, gift, gift of justification, righteousness, redemption. Maybe the whole package, the treasure hidden in the field, whatever's in that box. I want all that. The whole thing. I mean, it's, it's salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it. It's Christ living in us, the hope of glory. It's all of those things. That's the gift. And you say, now that gift, that free gift, one, uh, many of the translations say free gift, 
is not like the trespass. So what does he mean by that? Verse 15 and 16. How would you put that in your own words? What does it mean the free gift is not like the trespass? Trespass being Adam's. Yeah, this is just given to us by grace. Okay, very good. Anyone else? Gift is not like the trespass. The repetitions are better. I say it again, I'm sorry. The repetitions are better. Yeah, yeah, much bigger. The reper- re- repercussions, the effect is, is much, much bigger. And it's really pretty amazing when you think about it. Remember the minor point of this whole thing? is why is it everywhere we go in the world, there's sin and death? Seems like this chapter has an answer for that. What is the reason? Why is it everywhere we go, there's sin and death? Adam, yeah, right, his fault. Well, not entirely his fault. It's the fault of the sinners too. But at any rate, that's it. So how big was Adam's effect? How big? We put it up there? Yeah, I put it up there, real big. Jesus is, is immeasurably greater. That's the point being made here. So that's pretty awesome when you think about it. Next question. How did the many die by Adam's trespass? What does that mean? Many died by the trespass of the one man. By that sin entered the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So all, all the sins that came in the world. One of the things we need to understand In Adam, we don't just get a position. We get a nature. All right? So what does that mean? We get a nature, not just a position. God sees us as sinful in in Adam, but we also get a nature. What is that nature? A sin factory. All right? How would you characterize the basic disposition of an infant? Sweet, wonderful. Oh, you're going selfish. Now, that's the dark way of interpreting it. Would you guys all agree that infants are inherently selfish? Do do you see self-focus in an infant? All right, like I've had, we've had five kids, all right? I remember middle of the night feedings, all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I had a role to play, Chris had a role to play, but we both played it. And I found that those infants didn't care at all about our situation or our feelings or anything. They had a way of letting us know that they were not pleased. Have you guys ever noticed that way that those little ones have of letting us know that they're not pleased? It's hard to ignore. (laughs) And I found it got louder and more urgent as they got ignored. All right? And, And as they continue to develop in all of their sweetness. All right? You know, as they learn more about the world around them. What do you notice about them as that develops? Have you ever noticed something about their basic nature? Selfishness. Yeah, selfishness. I would call it fanatical devotion to self. And so much of parenting the world around is to, treat, is to teach manners sufficient to enable people who are every bit as still self-focused and selfish at age 30 as they were when they were 30 days old to get along with one another at the dinner table or at the office or whatever so we don't destroy each other. But there's that basic nature. And fundamental to it is rebellion against authority. All right? if it, as soon as you understand right from wrong, I mean, what's going to happen? What does that nature do? It's going to rebel. 
like you could put, you know, like this box with a switch on it. it says, do not touch this switch, you know? And in a family of five kids or whatever, something like that. How long do you think that's gonna last, you know? I mean, just as soon as, like, what happens if I do? Let's find out, you know, this whole thing. So fundamentally, there is a fundamental corruption, and it's not accidental. It is part of original sin. We get a position and we get a nature. So that, Romans 7, as soon as the law comes in, whether by the innate moral law in the conscience or the written law of special revelation, the laws of Moses, Ten Commandments, whatever, as soon as that comes in, we violate it. We break it. We violate our conscience because Romans 2 says our conscience alternate, accuse, and defend us. So sometimes our conscience tells us we did wrong. Sometimes we do right. But we're going to violate our conscience. And we're also going to violate the laws of God in every case. Not every single solitary day or every time, but every person will violate that every time. And that's what we're getting at. So that's the idea here. God's grace, how did God's grace overflow to many in Christ? God's grace overflowed to the many. That's the language. What does that image give you? God's grace overflowing to the many. Waterfall. Like a waterfall. I like that. All right. Super abundant grace. The last verse in this, uh, you know, one of the last verses says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You can't out-sin this grace. You can't sin greater than the grace of God in Christ. It's not possible. So that's, that's overflowing. It's a river of grace. Pretty beautiful. And how are the results of Adam's sin and Christ's uh, um, actions different? Adam gives us a physical punishment. Mm -hmm. Christ gives us a spiritual benefit. Amen. I like it. Physical, spiritual. Anyone else? Adam's effect is limited, all right? It's limited uh, to this earth. Um, but Christ's gift is eternal. Uh, that's what we are, are teaching here. All right, so summary. The free gift is much greater than judgment. Grace, is to grace to many is much greater than death to many. The many transgressions are much greater than one transgression. Christ's result is much greater than Adam's result. The reign of grace receives much greater than uh, the reign of death. Uh, receivers are much greater than the reign of death. So that's the compare and contrast. Christ is greater. His effect is greater, uh, etc. So uh, the image here I got was the Amazon River, 4.2 million cubic feet of water per second. That's a lot of water. That's amazing. Um, John MacArthur put it this way, Adam's sinful act, devastating as it was, had but a one-dimensional effect. It brought death to everyone. But the effect of Christ's redemptive act has facets beyond measure because he not only restores man to spiritual life but gives him the very life of God. Death is by nature static and empty, whereas life by nature is active and full. Only life can abound. So there's this abounding. That's what life is. Death, there's no abounding in death. You're just dead. Yeah, please. One of the ways I've heard this described is uh, from uh, the prologue of John, from, from his fullness that we all receive grace upon grace. Mm -hmm. And one picture of that could be just the, both the waves lapping on mm -hmm. the shore from the ocean. Yeah. It's just wave upon wave, grace yeah. upon grace, never ending. It's so true. Yeah, I mean, and we, I, there's a lot of ways to look at that. One of it is... Um, there's different kinds of effects of grace in our lives. One is, uh, I would say, covering grace, 
where you sin and Christ's blood covers it. All right, you're, you're forgiven, covering grace. Um, another is, is transforming grace, where you are changed by it. You're made into a different person. Um, and there's different kinds. So like, since you became a Christian, how much covering grace do you think you've needed? <laughs> do you have any sense of that at all? Just today, all right? How much covering grace did we need today? David said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. You know, imagine if you said to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, I know that you've not shown me all of my sin. Just today, just this one day, I want you to show it all, everything. Sins of omission and commission alike, everything. Just this one day, I can take it, all right? Pour it on me, all right? What would that day be like? I mean, he wouldn't do it because you couldn't take it. It's just so overwhelming. Sins of omission are things you should have done and you didn't do. You walked right by an opportunity to speak to somebody or to serve in some way, like the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan. They just walk by the other side. And you just don't even do it. How many people did we not share the gospel with that we could have? That, that kind of thing. Just so many. And then there's sins of commission as well. So we need a lot of covering grace. All right. Christ's results are greater than the results of Adam's uh, sin. Verse 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in the effect of Adam's sin. We came into the world with a bias toward evil. Those of us who have any knowledge of our own nature must confess that there is in us a strong tendency toward sin, which is mixed up with our very being. This is not derived solely from faults of education or from the limitation of, or imitation sorry, of others. But there is a bent within us in the wrong direction, and this has been there from our birth. Alas, that it should be so, but it is. In addition to having this tendency to sin, we are made liable to death. Nay, not liable alone, but we are sure in due time to bow our heads beneath the fatal stroke. Two only of the human race have escaped death, but the rest have left their bodies here to molder back into Mother Earth. And unless the Lord comes speedily, we expect that the same thing will happen to these bodies of ours. While we live, we know that the sweat of our brow must pay the price of our bread. We know that our children must be born with pangs and travail. We know that we ourselves must return to the dust from whence we are taken. For dust we are, and unto dust we must return. O oh, Adam, you did a sad day's work for us when you ate of the forbidden tree. The world has no more a paradise anywhere, but everywhere it has, been, has the place of wailing and the field of the dead. Where can you go and not find traces of the first transgression in the sepulcher and its moldering bones? Every field is fattened with the dust of the departed. Every wave of the sea is tainted with atoms of the dead. So that's a big effect of Adam's sin. Christ's effect is infinitely greater. Spurgeon said that on the gift of righteousness. Adam commits one fault and spoils us, but Christ's works and achievements are not one, but many as the stars of heaven. Look at that life of obedience. It is, a, it is like a crown set with all manner of priceless jewels. All the virtues are in it, and it is without flaw in any point. If one sinful action of our first covenant head destroys, shall not a whole life of holiness on the part of our second covenant representative be accepted for us? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, look at what we're talking about. You know, you're, I, I believe in a dynamic heaven in which there's creativity. There's learning and growth and development. What, what's being developed in hell? I mean, it's very static. Even though they're conscious, eternally conscious of their torment, there's nothing developing. There's no, it's not any different a million years in. But I believe in heaven we will continually be learning the glory of God. And I believe we will have energetic resurrection bodies that will be doing great things in the new heaven, new earth. It's just a, it it's just never ends. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Even if no new works happened, just to learn the old works done by Christ in your life and mine and the lives of all the people just in this room would take a long time to cover, right? You're talking about decades of God's goodness to us and through us. But then we're going out to a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation integrated over centuries of history. How many good works have already been done? They're in the record books, and we don't know any of them. So even if there were no good things in heaven, heaven is still, still a more dynamic place than hell. I could keep going. I, I mean, I'm getting warmed up to that. I love the topic of a dynamic heaven. nothing going on that's right <laughs> now I um, I mean there's so many things I could say about this Colossians 2 3 I love that verse in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge how much would you like to learn from Jesus all right so this Sunday I'm going to preach about the healing of the deaf mute all right Let's imagine, we don't know for sure, but let's imagine he was, he was mute because he was uh, deaf as an infant. So that means that he never learned to speak. But it says when Jesus touched his tongue, his tongue was loosed and he spoke clearly, plainly, instantly. He learned to form language immediately. So it wasn't just his tongue and all that. It was something in here that was completely restored instantly by Jesus. He just knew how to do that. I'm just telling you, I mean, just the, the kind of, of majesty of Christ and that we don't know the millionth part of it now. What do you think we're going to be studying in heaven but the greatness of God in Christ? So I look on it as a much better place in every respect, and hell is just static. I just think when they've been there 10,000 years, they will still think they don't deserve it. They're still wailing and gnashing their teeth. There's no development. It's the same situation. All right, um, so verse 17. If by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now here we have an unexpected break of syntax. It's not exactly parallel. You've got to read Romans carefully. What do I mean? We would expect Paul to compare the reign of death to what? The reign of life. That would be the peril, right? You got the reign of death on the one hand, you got the reign of life on the other. So, if so, it would have read something like this. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will life reign through the one man, Jesus Christ? That's pure parallelism. But that's not what the verse says. What does it say? 
What does the reigning in verse 17, in the good, in the good half of the verse? All right, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one more, one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign? So you take all the words out, those will reign. Those people will reign. That's, he's talking about people, right? So instead of a pure parallelism of death reigns, life reigns, it's death reign versus we reign. It's talking about us. Those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, those are Christians, friends. Those are, that's us. We're going to reign in life through Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. It's like, I didn't see that coming. Well, there's a lot of stuff in Romans we didn't see coming. It's like there's lots of details. So, yeah, it is true that life will reign, grace reigns, but Paul says that we will reign. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So Christians reign in life. We reign now and we'll reign later. We're already reigning. What does that mean? We're already reigning now. We're going to reign later. How, how are we reigning now in life through Jesus Christ? Yes. Sounds like Ephesians to me. You know, raised in Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're reigning through our union with Christ. Any other sense of how we reign in life? We're not slaves to sin anymore. So is that like we are reigning or we should reign? Well, we do reign, but you should reign over every temptation that ever comes to you. We'll get to that in Romans 6. That's the next chapter. So what does that say? If you actually do reign over every temptation, what should that mean about every temptation that comes your way? What should you do with it? Take it captive. Kill it. Resist it. Do you have the ability to do that? Every time. 100% of the time. In Christ, yes. 100% of the temptations that come to you, you can resist. Not 99%, 100%. There's not a single temptation that God will ever say, I want you to know about that one. There was nothing you could do. No problem on that one. But the rest of them, you needed to resist. He's never going to say that. He will say, because of who you are in Christ, you can say no to any temptation and everything. And as a matter of fact, not just can, but you must, you should. So we'll get to that in Romans. But that's reigning in life now. We're reigning in life. So, and there's many other ways beside, all right? Now, what about later? How will we reign in life later? We'll reign over death, right? I didn't even choose the right verse here. I should have done, you know, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, grave, is your sting? That's like taunt language. That's like we win. We put our foot on the neck of death. Death will die while we live. Death is going to be thrown, and the grave are going to be thrown in the lake of fire. We win over death. We will live when death is dead. So we actually get to reign over death. That's pretty awesome. Um, but we also reign in heaven with Christ. Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. That's pretty awesome. So the reign of grace, rece uh, grace receivers, that's Christians, is greater than the reign of death ever was. It's an eternal reign because death is only temporary. It's an unbreakable reign. Death was defeated. It's an abundantly fruitful reign. Death was totally barren. The reign of Christians in life is far greater than the tyrannical reign of death. 
But this is a conditional promise. It's not true of every single human being. We've already dealt with this. This chapter could seem to be teaching universalism because Adam's sin is universally applied to the human race. But Christ's righteousness is not. It's not universally applied to the entire human race. For if it were, what would that doctrine be called? It's got a name. Universalism. There's even a denomination. All right? Unitarian Universalists. That's what they teach. All right? We are not universalists. We do not believe that that's what's being taught here. Instead, all that Adam represented had this effect or the, this outcome, and all those that Christ represented had that effect. That's what the chapter is teaching. It's not teaching universalism. Instead, this is a conditional statement here. How much more <clears throat> will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So how do we get this, the benefits? Receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness. How do you do that? How do you receive God's abundant, abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness? By faith, you receive it by faith. As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the double statement there in John 1.12 gives us a sense of what it means to receive. To those who received him, Christ, to those who believed in his name. By faith, we receive this gift. That's what he's teaching here. All right, so um, this is an illustration I used when I preached this uh, text some time ago. I'll read it and we'll finish with that. In the closing months of 1999, a blue ribbon pa panel assembled by Time magazine got together to determine their person of the century. The rules for this game were clearly agreed upon. They were looking for the person who had had the greatest impact on the century, for better or worse. Imagine choosing that. By those rules, some of the panel brought up the question of Adolf Hitler. Of course, they all reco recoiled from the idea of putting Hitler's face on the cover of their magazine with the title, man of the century. I mean, that would not be good for sales. That would be pretty ugly. But they're just trying to follow the rules of the game, all right? But they still felt uh, duty bound to investigate the possibility from a purely academic point of view. Had Hitler, the man who had unleashed forces which led to massive upheaval and a total transformation of the world as we know it, had this evil man had the greatest impact of any human being on the 20th century? UN Ambassador Richard Holbrook reluctantly nominated Hitler, saying that the es essence of Hitlerism is still with us today. Racism, ethnic hate, hatred, extreme nationalism, state-organized murder is still alive, causing millions of death. deaths. Holbrook said, freedom is the century's most powerful idea, but the struggle is far from over. Time then went to deeper to analyze the issues of good and evil themselves. You could ask this of any year, any century, which has the greater impact, good or evil, the heroes or the villains? Roosevelt and Churchill or Hitler and Stalin. To what extent do they depend on each other when threats produce resolve, when terror engenders courage, when an ultimate challenge to, uh, to principle has the effect of making principles stronger, forging them by fire? Thoughtful people who argue for Hitler as the person of the century do not want to honor him 
They want to autopsy him, understand what made him strong and what finally killed him, and search perhaps for a vaccine for the virus that reappears still in ethnic enclaves on websites, in the wilderness camps of skinhead anarchists in the halls of Columbine High School, where two boys celebrated Hitler's birthday with a memorial massacre of children. These are the very issues that Romans 5 seeks to answer. Not only the origins of evil, but also how it has spread to every person on the face of the earth. In a very real sense, the Apostle Paul would say that if you're looking for the person most responsible for the evil of every century, you need look no further than one man, Adam. But in Romans 5, 15 through 17, the passage we study tonight, Paul goes deeper into the incredible good news of the gospel. The ultimate hero of the 20th century is the good hero, that the effect of the good hero far outweighs the effect of the evil villain. But the good hero of the 20th century was not Roosevelt or Churchill or Albert Einstein. The hero of the 20th century is the same as the hero of the 21st century and indeed of every century. It is Jesus Christ. And the point of Romans 5, 15 through 17 is that Christ's powerful effect is much greater than anything we received in Adam, no matter how horrible it was. That's pretty thoughtful, isn't it? powerful um, thing that I saw a number of years ago. I thought I would share it with you. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that uh, despite the fact that we live in a suffering world, that despite the fact that we see evidence of wickedness and corruption, sin and death around us all the time, uh, despite the fact that we have been through uh, historically um, great suffering and great agonies and sorrows, and that they continue even to this day. Despite all of that, we know that this chapter teaches, and we can understand why it does, that the impact of Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than any of these evils. We thank you that it gives us hope. Uh, we can look in the midst of a dark time and know that Christ, even every day, every single day, has worked far greater eternal good that day than any of the evil that happened on earth. So I pray, Lord, that you give us hope, fill us with energy, with joy, Help us to share the gospel with people who don't have the hope that we have. Help us to be active while we have time on earth to do so. And help us to be filled with the hope of heaven, which comes from scriptural meditation and from the work of Christ and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Gave a nice summary at the beginning of the, of the whole thing. Hopefully that'll be... That would be helpful. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.